The Apostle Matthew records in his gospel that at one point while Jesus was speaking to the crowds of people who'd gathered to hear him, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and mother. You understand, when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, this thing that we call the church is not a place where we gather to participate in religious activities. When you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the church is your family. These people sitting all around you today, they're not just fellow church members. They are your brothers and your sisters, your mothers and your fathers, your sons and your daughters. This is family. And it is a family that extends beyond these walls, of course, to include every follower of Christ on this earth, regardless of race, nationality, background, upbringing, personality, preferences, status, or circumstance. And as in any family, every single member of the family has a responsibility to love and care for every other member of the family. I imagine I could... I could probably make that statement in just about any church today and most of the people in attendance would nod their heads in agreement. Yet listen, you don't actually love and care for your family simply by saying that you do. No, you love and care for your family by actually doing it, by actually loving and caring for them on a daily basis. Right? You can tell your family at home that you love and care for them all you want to. But if you don't actually provide food and shelter and nurture and guidance and discipline and encouragement and forgiveness and support and accountability and commitment, all the things right that human beings need to grow and thrive and to be healthy, then no matter how much you say it, you don't actually love and care for them. And look... According to Jesus, that is even more true when it comes to this family that we call the church. And yet I look at our churches and I wonder, are we actually loving and caring for one another or are we just friendly? Are we genuinely concerned with the needs of each other or are we simply comfortable with each other? Are we submitted to and serving our brothers and sisters in Christ at all times, no matter the cost to us personally? Or do we submit to one another only when it suits us? Do we serve one another only when it doesn't cramp our lifestyle? Because being a member of this family of God, the church, according to Jesus, will require nothing less of you than your very life, all that you have and all that you are. He said, this is my commandment, not my suggestion, not my idea, not my philosophy, not even my teaching. No, he said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends, John 15, 12, and 13. The apostle John said, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives. For the brothers, that's the church. 
But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. 1 John 3, 16 through 18. In other words, it is not enough to simply say that you love and care for one another. You must actually live it out every day of your life. Well, yeah, but what if someone, uh, what if it's someone I don't get along with? Sorry. There's no allowance for that in the command of Christ where we're supposed to lay our lives down for the brothers and sisters. Well, but what if it's someone I don't particularly like? Sorry. Jesus didn't make any exceptions. Okay, but what if it costs me more than I want to give? Yeah. Yeah, Jesus guaranteed us that it would. He said, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 33. You see, this is family. And it is our highest calling to love and care for one another. And yet that calling has eluded the children of God since the beginning of time because we are innately selfish by nature. It is natural for us to think of ourselves before we think about anyone else, which of course we've been talking about for a couple of weeks now as we continue our sermon series working our way through the story of creation where Adam and Eve have been cast out of paradise, out of the Garden of Eden for the sin of putting themselves before God. And as we'll see in our story today, their son now confronted with the same choice not only puts himself before God, but he puts himself before his own family in the very worst way. Because he failed to recognize the profound responsibility that he was given to love and care for his own family. A responsibility that in fact every follower of Christ shares today when it comes to the family of God. And yet one that I fear much of the church today has lost sight of because we've become so consumed with ourselves. And so in our story today, which is a story, by the way, about the character of God far more than it is about the character of Cain, the firstborn son of Adam and Eve. In our story today, we find God demonstrating the kind of love and care for his people that we're supposed to demonstrate to one another even when we don't have it all together. In fact, especially when we don't have it all together because that is exactly what God did for us. And it's what we're supposed to be doing for each other when you are a part of his family. All right, so let's pick the story back up where we left off last time at Genesis chapter 4 and see what we can learn about what it really means to be a part of the family of God. We'll begin by reading the first seven verses, Genesis 4. Now Adam knew his wife, knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. 
its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So again, this is after Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden, probably to the east of Eden, as the cherubim and the flaming sword were placed by God on the eastern side of the garden to keep them out. And then later, as we'll see, uh, as God drives Cain away from his family's initial settlement, he ends up even further east of Eden in the land of Nod. And uh, by the way, it's worth mentioning here that this entire chapter is bookended by God's people worshiping him, even though they've sinned against him in the very worst ways. The chapter begins and ends with Eve having children and, and them worshiping God, which is unquestionably meant to be a sign of hope to all of us that even in our brokenness, as dysfunctional as the human race is, that he still invites us in to be in relationship with him when we come to him in humble repentance and worship through Christ. And so here they are. Adam and Eve starting over in a new location, and they have their first child, a son they've named Cain, which means acquired. And we, we know that Eve meant it in the sense that Cain was acquired from God, as she explains as much in her statement in verse 1. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord, which is significant because it shows us that Eve recognizes that despite her own sin, that God is still moving in her life and still working on her behalf. He's clearly still with them, still helping them, still blessing them. Without question, there is a distinct overtone of hope in this statement by Eve and in the opening of this chapter that even though they've rebelled against God, all is not lost on the contrary, Cain is the sign that even when we sin, there's hope for a better future. And even though uh, Cain, obviously, as we'll see, doesn't live up to his mother's expectations, nonetheless, Eve is still looking to God as her source of hope and blessing, which, again, should be a lesson for all of us, that even after we've messed things up in our lives and in our relationship with God, and even in the very midst of having to deal with the consequences of our own sin, there's still always hope in Christ. He is still able and still willing to bless us and to give us a future and a hope when we choose to follow him, which is a message that runs like a thread throughout this fourth chapter, as we'll see. And so, like his father, Cain was a farmer. He worked the ground while his brother Abel was a sheep herder, both honorable occupations. And obviously both of these men were raised with an understanding of who God was and what it meant to live for him. Because right from the very beginning of their story, we find them bringing offerings to God to worship him. And this, uh, this part of the story has caused a lot of confusion for Christians over the years because at the surface... It seems unfair that Abel's sacrifice was accepted while Cain's was not. And one popular teaching, at least in modern times, has been that Cain's offering was unacceptable because it was not a blood sacrifice. But listen, if you simply read it in the original Hebrew, it becomes clear that was not the problem with Cain's offering at all. Uh, both Cain and Abel's offerings are described in the ancient Hebrew as minka. It's discussed in Leviticus too as a gift for the purpose of honoring God. Typically it was offered in the context of a celebration. So the Minka offering was a simple act of worship. And as far as the Minka was concerned in scripture, fruit and vegetable offerings were as acceptable and appropriate as animal offerings. It's actually very clear 
in the original text that the problem with Cain's offering had nothing to do with the absence of blood. You see, it, it wasn't the substance of Cain's offering that was the problem. It was the substance of Cain's heart that was the problem because his heart was not inclined toward God, as we'll see, which is what made his offering unacceptable. Verses 3 and 4 say that in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground, while Abel brought an offering of the firstborn of his flock, which is profoundly significant because throughout Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, we find the first fruits and the firstborn always being reserved for God alone in worship. In fact, uh, Israel itself was considered as God's first fruit in Jeremiah 2.3 and his firstborn in Exodus 4.22, which is also imagery, by the way, shared by the church in Romans 11.6 and Hebrews 12.23 and by Christ himself in Romans 8.29 and 1 Corinthians 15.20 and 23. Why? Why is it so important to God to have the first fruits and the firstborn in worship? Well, listen, it has nothing to do with God's need to have what is first. No, it, it has everything to do with our need to put God first. It's all about us showing our veneration, uh, our respect and reverence and adoration toward God as first in our lives. Requiring the first fruits and the firstborn in worship is all about teaching us to put God first. It's about the condition of our hearts toward Him. You see, it would have required no more work for Cain to bring his first fruits to God in worship, but instead he simply brought some of the fruit not the first fruit. Why? Why not bring God the first fruits? Well, it's because God wasn't first in Cain's life. Hebrews 11.4 describes Abel as faithful and righteous, while 1 John 3.12 describes Cain as of the evil one. And yet it is not the offerings themselves that made Abel righteous or Cain evil. No, the acceptable offering of Abel and the unacceptable offering of Cain were a direct result of what was already in their hearts. Martin Luther wrote, the faith of the individual was the weight which added value to Abel's offering. Likewise, Cain's offering simply betrays what was already in his heart. You understand, we are accountable not only for what we do, but for why we do it. In Mark's gospel account, he says that Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which makes a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Mark 12, 41 through 44. Look, you can attend church and participate in worship and given the offering, and serve in the ministry. But if you're doing all of that out of religious obligation instead of reverent adoration, then how acceptable do you think all of that is to God? God doesn't need our service. 
He doesn't need our ministry. He doesn't need our offerings. He doesn't need our worship. God needs nothing. A.W. Tozer wrote, this may hurt some of you, but I'm obliged to tell you that God does not need anything you have. He does not need a dime of your money. It's your own spiritual welfare at stake in such matters as these. There's a beautiful and enriching principle involved in our offering to God what we are and what we have. But none of us are giving because there's a depression in heaven. The Bible teaching is plain. You have right to keep what you have all to yourself, but it will rust and decay and ultimately ruin you. In fact, in Psalm 50, 12, God says to his people, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. You see, God doesn't need our service. He doesn't need our ministry. He doesn't need our offerings, and he doesn't need our worship. God needs nothing. On the contrary, he invites us to serve. He invites us to minister. He invites us to give, and he invites us to worship because we need to do all of that in order to express our devotion to him as first in our lives. By the way, it's not as if we don't know why we do what we do, right? I mean, come on, deep down, we know exactly what our motivations are. Not once did Cain ask God why his offering was unacceptable. Because he knew what was in his own heart. He didn't have to ask God. If Cain had innocently made a mistake in bringing the wrong offering, he would have humbly repented before the Father, who would have readily accepted and forgiven him. But instead, Cain was very angry, and his face fell because he knew exactly what is in his own heart. Jealousy, pride, and resentment. So why do you serve? Why do you minister? Why do you give? Why do you worship? If it is out of an overwhelming sense of reverent adoration for God and love for his people, then you won't threaten to quit every time someone in the church offends you. You won't walk away when the church no longer meets your expectations or preferences. You won't hold your money as leverage to get what you want from the ministry. You won't only show up to participate when it's your turn to serve. You won't compare your ministry to others who have different gifts and different callings. You won't expect more from others than you do from yourself and you won't be angry when you're held accountable for your attitude toward God and his people because your love and adoration for him and for each other will override the frustrations that listen we all inevitably experience in any family not so for Cain in Luke eleven forty nine 49 through 51 Jesus describes Abel as a prophet Keep in mind that at this point in history, so early on in the creation story, there were only so many people on the earth, which means you can rest assured that Cain was on the short list of those who received the prophecies that were coming out of Abel's mouth at the time. And I don't think it's a stretch to believe that as a result, Cain was jealous of his little brother, jealous of his gift, resentful of his calling, and yet too proud to admit it. So his heart was turned not only against God for pointing it out, for holding him accountable, but also against his own family for holding him accountable, probably through prophetic words that were given to him through Abel. We don't know. And so God, knowing all of that, of course, patiently and lovingly warns 
Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And interestingly, when God says sin is crouching at the door, that description of sin crouching at the door is the the, uh, ancient Hebrew word rabats, which in its Akkadian form, Akkadian is a, uh, another ancient Semitic language, in its Akkadian form, this same word was the name of a well-known Mesopotamian demon from the old Babylonian period who is said to linger in doorways waiting to ambush his victims. So God says this demon's desire is contrary to Cain, so he must rule over it, which is the exact same statement that God makes when he refers to the conflict between husbands and wives as a result of Adam and Eve's sin in chapter 3, verse 16, where God says to Eve, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. In other words, We're supposed to hold one another accountable in our relationships, in our marriages, in our families, and in our church. Accountable not only for what we do, but for why we're doing it. And yet our natural inclination is to resist that accountability, to be contrary to it. So he says we must rule over, mercilessly I might add, we must rule over the inclination within ourselves to resist accountability in our lives. So look, if, if you're not willing to be held to account for your actions and your own attitudes toward God and others, by God and by others, then sin is crouching at your door, the door of opportunity that you give it. And make no mistake, its desire is to have you. I'll just be honest with you. I've lost count of the people I've known over the years whose lives have been utterly devastated, some of them ended on this earth because they refused to allow themselves to be held account for their actions and attitudes toward God and his people. And so believing that they knew better, they walked away from the church and in doing so out from underneath the spiritual protection that accountability affords all of us. And it is usually only a matter of time when you walk away from accountability in your life that the sad descent into all-out rebellion against God and his people and the destruction that it brings in your life begins. It's exactly what we see here in the life of Cain as we continue the story, verses 8 through 16. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you're cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Obviously, we don't know what was said between these two brothers that day. 
I personally believe that Abel, the righteous, faithful prophet, was probably holding Cain accountable for what was in his heart by speaking pure truth in love to Cain, who was having none of it. And so Cain decides to silence his brother once and for all as he sheds the innocent blood of his brother Abel. So God comes to Cain to hold him accountable for what he's done since Abel no longer could. And he asked Cain where Abel is. Now, obviously God knows exactly where Abel is. He knows what Cain has said and he knows what Cain has done. God is not asking for his own benefit. He's asking for Cain's benefit. Once again, God is giving Cain an opportunity to repent and to have his relationship with God restored. So he asks Cain where his brother is, to which Cain inexplicably replies, I do not know, am I my brother's keeper? The word keeper in that verse is the ancient Hebrew word shamar, and it has to do with responsibility. It means to guard or to protect, or to attend to. You see, when Cain asks what he thought was a rhetorical question, am I my brother's keeper? The answer to that question is yes. You absolutely are your brother's keeper, or at least you should have been, because we're responsible not just for ourselves, but for each other. From the moment God created those first human beings, Cain's parents in Genesis 1 and 2, to the Mosaic Law in Leviticus 25 and Numbers 35, and then throughout the rest of biblical scripture, including several passages that we looked at in the introduction of this sermon, we're commanded to guard, to protect, and to attend to one another. You understand, we're directly responsible for how our actions or lack of action on the behalf of others affects their lives, not just ours. This family called the church is not an every man for himself proposition. No, it's every man for each other. But here's the part we really don't get sometimes. First of all, when you abandon a relationship that you have no business leaving or you wound someone else physically or emotionally or spiritually or you neglect to care for someone you're in relationship with like you should, first of all, you're going to answer to God, not just for yourself, but for all those you've devastated in the process. In fact, Jesus said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Matthew 12, 36. That means we will even have to give account for every unreconciled, hurtful word we've ever spoken to others. And secondly... Your relationships with other people are intrinsically tied to your relationship with God. But listen, I don't think people seem to get that today. We walk away from relationships or wound other people. And, and we may recognize that it's a shame that it happened the way it did. Or it could have been handled better. Or we wish it had worked out differently. But since we still love Jesus and he forgives us at the end of the day. At least we know that our relationship with God is still good. Look, if there's someone in your life. Or someone who used to be in your life who is broken or hurting because of something you did to them that you shouldn't have. Or because of something you didn't do that you should have. And you haven't asked them for forgiveness and repented for the hurt you've caused in their lives. Then I have news for you today. Your relationship with God is not good. The Apostle John wrote, if anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God 
cannot love God whom he has not seen. 1 John 4.20, you cannot, you cannot, you cannot claim to love your brother if you're knowingly allowing the hurt that you have caused in their lives to continue without asking for forgiveness. And it all comes back to the responsibility that each one of us bears for the other. John Walton writes, when we refuse to accept responsibility, we have paved the way for refusing to accept blame. Which is precisely what we find, isn't it, in epic proportion in our culture today. People refusing to accept blame for their actions or inactions, which is also obviously nothing new because it is precisely what we see in Cain's life as well. And so how does that end up affecting his life, his relationship with his family, and his relationship with God? Well, God says to Cain, remember, who was a farmer who made his living from the ground, God says to Cain, now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. So Cain's refusal to accept responsibility or blame for his actions has directly affected the quality of his own life. Verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Now, who do you suppose Cain is worried about killing him? Right at this point, the only people on the earth is his own family. Yeah, his own family. So Cain, refusing to accept responsibility or blame for his actions, has not only directly affected the quality of his own life, but it has torn his family relationships apart. Verse 16, then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So Cain, refusing to accept responsibility or blame for his actions, has not only directly affected the quality of his own life, has not only torn his family relationships apart, but it has driven him away from the very presence of God himself. You see, the responsibility that we have for one another affects every single aspect of our lives. You cannot shirk the responsibility that God has given you for the other people in your life and expect it not to affect every other area of your life, including your relationship with God. It most certainly will. Yet even after all of that, for all of the jealousy, all of the pride, all of the hatred and lies and even murder, that Cain commits, God says to him, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. This is God's mercy at work in the life of a man who does not deserve it because even in Cain's own horrific sin, God still loves him and still gives him opportunity after opportunity to be redeemed. It's just what he does in our lives today. Because we've all hurt other people. We've all shirked our responsibility at times when it comes to guarding and protecting and tending to one another. And yet God in his great love and mercy for us affords us the opportunity to come back into relationship with him and with those we've hurt. Listen, it starts 
when we accept the responsibility for what we've said or done that we shouldn't have, or maybe what we have not said or done that we should have, and then repent of that sin and ask for forgiveness. And in that very moment, He restores our relationship with Him through Jesus Christ, who is always interceding on our behalf to that very end. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 17 to the end of the chapter. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mahuel, and Mahuel fathered Methuselah, and Methuselah fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Yavel, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Yuval. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tuval Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tuval Cain was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, and listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So Cain moves away, and as any future in farming has been cursed for him, he instead builds a city and raises a family there. And then we have a short genealogy of Cain's family in verses 18 through 22, which culminates in Lamech, a grandson, seven generations removed, displaying the very same sin as Cain, which is intended to show the reader that the line of Cain was dominated by those who have absolutely no regard for the lives of others or the responsibility that they have to guard and protect and attend to their fellow man. In other words, nothing has changed for Cain or his descendants. Even though by the patience and mercy of God, he's been permitted to live and even thrive away from his parents and away from God. And even though Cain has accepted the consequences of his behavior, he refused to change. And the result is a trail of devastation and brokenness that continues in the lives of those he's in relationship with. You see, we're required not just to accept our behavior, but to change it. James, the brother of Jesus, said, Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. James 4, 17. It's one thing to know and accept what is right. It is something altogether different to actually do what is right. And I would say, this is one of the great struggles for the church as a whole today, because for the most part... I think most Christians understand and accept the truth about accountability and responsibility in relationship to our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's the application of it that we have a hard time with. Because actually changing the way that we live in order to be accountable to one another and responsible for one another, it's not something many people are comfortable with or willing to do. What you end up with There's a lot of professing believers who know the truth, but don't always live it when it comes to how we interact with one another, which leads, listen, that leads to a trail of people whose lives are broken and devastated because of the church. In truth, 
That has been a trend in the American church for a long time now, and I believe it is high time we change it. The church is supposed to be a place of refuge, a place of healing, a place of love, a place of compassion. Listen, a place of forgiveness. The church is supposed to be a place where people are protected, cared for, provided for, and attended to. You understand, these are supposed to be hallmarks of the church. The fact is, if the church is going to be what God created it to be, then we're going to have to be more than just friendly, more than just comfortable, more than just sociable, because this is family. These are your brothers and your sisters your mothers and your fathers, your sons and your daughters. This is the way God intended for it to be. And listen, no matter how far we may ever stray from the path he has put us on as the church, no matter how far we may stray from him and from one another, there is always hope for tomorrow. There is always hope for restoration because we still belong to him, which means whether we act like it or not, we are still in Christ. We're still his family. In fact... In the last two verses of this chapter, we're introduced to Seth, the son who would fulfill what Abel could not and Cain would not, a man whose own children call upon the name of the Lord. They return to the path of submission and worship that Cain departed from. And just as the seventh generation from Cain, Lamech, was a murderer, the seventh generation from Seth, a man named Enoch, was said to have walked with God, a man whose family line ultimately leads to Jesus Christ. You see, no matter how far we stray from his path as the church, there's always hope for us to be reconciled to him and to each other in Christ. And the truth is, the truth is nothing less will do. Why? Because we're family. Brothers and sisters. Mothers and fathers. Sons and daughters. We're family, which means we owe it to God and to one another to live like it. Let's pray.